Could I invite everybody to stand back up, please? <laughs> Consider it cardio. We have a lot of people here this morning. We need an SOS, which stands for scoot over some, okay? If you're on the aisles, would you move toward the center, please? So much for the Saturday service, huh? <laughs> Nobody cares. I'm coming Sunday at 1030. Whenever you come, welcome. We're glad you're here. All right. Come on in, everybody. All right. That helped a little bit. Thank you. Do you feel adventurous? Well, never mind then. Um, I'll try again. Are you feeling mildly adventurous? Want to do something innovative? Okay. <laughs> you never know these days in church what the pastor might do. This is very simple. We're going to do something that I've really missed since moving back to the United States. I grew up in Mexico, and one of the hallmarks of Mexican churches all across the nation is they read the Bible together. The pastor reads a verse, and the congregation reads a verse, and they read through a passage together. That doesn't happen very often, I think, here in the United States because we're blessed with several good Bible translations, and if we were to all read the translation that we happen to bring with us, there would be the Tower of Babel. There would be cacophony all over again in Huntington Beach in 2017. So let's do it this way. If you have your electronic device, direct it toward the English Standard Version of the Bible. If you don't have that particular translation with you, there should be a Bible near you in one of the chairs, either directly beneath you or near you. Let's all look up John chapter 15, the gospel according to the disciple John chapter 15, and before we continue our journey with Jesus through the gospel of Luke, I want to read with you John 15, the first 11 verses. Here's the setting. Jesus has spent three years with His disciples. He has spent the last 10 months prior to His crucifixion specifically telling them that He's going to be crucified. And chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John are His last moments with them. The traitor Judas has gone out into a dark night to look for soldiers and the temple guard to come back and arrest Jesus. His murder on the cross, which was predetermined by God to make Jesus our Savior, take the punishment that we deserved, all of that machinery is now moving very, very quickly, and Jesus will soon go to the cross. In John chapter 15, Jesus taught some of His disciples this little core that is actually going after His resurrection to take His message everywhere. He taught them, using a simple word picture, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to experience His life. So in John 15, I'm going to read the first verse, you'll read the second, and we'll close by reading verse 11 together. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Together, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Lord Jesus, may this reading and the message to follow from Luke's gospel, help our joy be full. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you work in customer service? Great job, isn't it? (laughs) Super easy, right? Especially if you work in a call center, and they've used all of that technology to randomly connect you to someone somewhere in America and you just get to talk to people all day. Isn't it great? I've worked in customer service, and I've been reading about customer service because of what happened to Jesus in Luke chapter 5. It just made me think about what it's like, particularly to deal with the public, but especially if you work in one of those call centers and every new person that the computer assigns to you Men, women, young, old, they all have something in common. What is it? They have a problem. They may even be a problem, but in their world, they have a problem. And if maybe you've been on the other side of the phone as the person with the gripe, it gets pretty personal and pretty heated sometimes. I've been reading business um, management literature this week as I started thinking about this. I was surprised to see how much professional literature is directed to customer service people to help them manage the stress. You wouldn't think it'd be that bad. You're just sitting there talking on the phone to your fellow human beings, made in the image of God, loved by God just as you are, right? Should be a walk in the park, right? No, it's not, because every single person that calls for as long as your shift goes, nobody ever calls Verizon to say everything's awesome. I just wanted to thank you. I marvel at the technology that connects me worldwide, sometimes with real-time video, to anyone who happens also to have one of your products. I live in an amazing age, and I just wanted to say, thank you. These are great days. Never happens, right? No, it doesn't. What's that have to do with Jesus? Well, as I follow Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been doing extraordinary things. He has opened up the Scriptures, written 700 and 1,000 years before His birth, and taught them like no one ever has. People heard Him and specifically said, He teaches with authority. It's not only teaching. There may be many powerful teachers of the Word of God. Jesus does much more than a mere teacher. He heals people. 
He has faculties over things that have been ruined beyond remedy, like a man who has been paralyzed. He can tell that man in a moment, with no surgery, no physical therapy, get up and walk. And he does. He goes home leaping and singing for joy. There's no one like Jesus, and yet, everywhere he goes, as you keep reading the Gospel of Luke, there is just this incessant noise of complaining. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus has had the audacity to walk up to the tax booth of a man named Levi. He was named after the priestly tribe of Israel that was commissioned by God to help people come into his presence in worship. And this Levi has sold himself out to the Roman Empire. He's a tax collector. He's extorting. He's overcharging his countrymen to enrich himself and help finance the Roman army who occupies Israel by force. It's the only way Rome stays in charge, and he's helping. Jesus walked up to Levi and said, follow me, and Levi left everything and started following Jesus and threw him a party. He gathered up tax collectors and other notorious people because they were the only ones who would come. And if you'll look with me in Luke chapter 5, that wasn't very popular. There were laments about that. And in Luke chapter 5, it says in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They griped at the disciples, but Jesus heard it and answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what Jesus is here for. Whether people are admitted sinners and they know they're far from God, or they're in a much more dangerous position and they're self-righteous, and they have no room and time for the righteousness of God and may be even farther away from the person who at least he knows he's spiritually sick. Jesus is here to call anyone and everyone to come back to God. Well, it didn't go terribly well. The next story right then registers another complaint. In the call center of Jesus, the phone rang again, and the Pharisees and the scribes had another gripe. Specifically, it says in verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Well, in our culture, that may seem like a strange complaint, but the Pharisees have a gripe. See, the, one of the meanest things you can call someone this day is a Pharisee. That's someone who's hypocritical. We, that's the way we look at it, self-righteous, hypocritical. In the days of Jesus, the Pharisees were a very important group. Today, we would call them a pressure group. Of all the Orthodox, they were the most observant. They were the strictest, and they were observant, and they were strict. They had taken the Word of God and piled it high with man-made traditions that, in their understanding, told them exactly how to obey God. And the reason they were so observant, they were way off, but they had one noble motive— in their understanding, if they could be strict enough, if they could be observant enough, and especially if they could get enough people to join them, because they would go to any lengths to make a convert and to welcome someone into the fasting and praying and observant group, and they all did it for this reason. 
They thought if we can be strict enough, if we can be good enough, we will prompt God to work and He will rescue us. Every day they got up and they saw those Roman soldiers. They saw those garrisons. They saw those tax collectors. They saw their place of worship under custody of a Roman guard overlooked by a military outpost. It broke their heart. It turned their stomach. So they fasted and they prayed and they made big public deals of their fasting and praying to call out to the rest of the country, be righteous like we are, join us, let's prompt God to act and redeem and save us. See, if you don't understand that motivation, it seems like they're completely disconnected. One reason they hated Jesus so much is they had lost sight of who and what God had promised in the Scriptures, and when God actually sent the Messiah, the one who was written down in specific detail, and you can look at it if you're still skeptical, if you're still wondering, you can look at these Hebrew Scriptures that are verifiably written 700 and 1,000 years before Jesus was born and read His life in detail. It's all right there in writing. It's it's not someone telling you that they found some conspiracy website, that some TV show predicted something that's happening today 25 years ago. It's not like that. It's in writing verifiably, but they missed it. In John chapter 5, Jesus tried to help them understand. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that give witness about me. And Jesus comes, and He welcomes the worst of people. And not only that, he goes home with them, and he eats and he drinks with them. And in their understanding, this just pushes the work of God farther behind. He's gathering crowds. We're losing ground. God is never going to save us. We're going to live and die under these pagan Romans. Nothing is going to happen. God is not going to be able to help. So they said the disciples of John fast often and offers prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. It's not a statement. It's not a question. It's a statement. Did you notice? How does it sound to you? Are they happy? No. They're making a very negative comparison. Jesus answers with a question. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Man, he's so good. They made a statement. He asks a question. Now, later this afternoon, I'm going to go out to a beautiful venue here in Orange County, and rain or shine, I'm going to officiate a wedding. Can you imagine in that setting if the host over the dinner said, well, they're married now, but here's the deal, no food, no water, and certainly no cake for the lot of you. This is a time for mournful reflection because this couple has just committed holy matrimony. (laughs) Would that ever happen at a wedding? No. People take out loans. People go into debt because they want to eat and drink and celebrate. Jesus is saying something radical and subversive. He's striking at the very heart of their belief system. He's saying the days of mournful fasting and waiting are over. I'm here. This is a party because... I'm here. What Jesus is telling them is this, simply, the presence of Jesus means joy. 
the fact that God kept these promises made so very long ago means that it is time to celebrate. It is time to be joyful. Look in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This is a very short passage, but I've got to tell you, Jesus does some deep teaching here. All he's using is images, and it forces the reader to slow down. So I want to study the Bible with you this morning. I want to slow down, and I want to ask some questions, because I discovered in my study that I've misread this passage for a very long time. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. The reason I'm in this notorious man's house surrounded by other notorious people, the reason we're laughing and drinking and eating is because I'm here. The wedding's on. The bridegroom is present. God's promises have been kept. This is a time for joy. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Here's my Bible study question. When is it that the bridegroom is taken away from the disciples, causing them to fast? Yes. And I misread the Bible for years. For three short days, Jesus was taken away from his disciples. For three short days, they couldn't see him because he was literally killed and in a grave. And those days were the darkest days of any of these men's lives. Then they fasted, and I'm sure they didn't need to be prompted. They didn't need to make a conscious religious choice. I am fasting. They fasted in the worst possible way, which is when you fast, you don't eat simply because you don't want to. But Jesus wasn't always taken away from them. The point of the gospel story, and Luke is going to show this to us along with all of the gospel writers, is the presence of Jesus means joy. The fact that he is here makes everything joyful, and he wasn't gone for long. Look how Luke ends his gospel. We'll read together again. Luke 24, verse 41 says this. After they saw Jesus back from the dead, Luke gives this account. Read that with me. They still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. They still disbelieved. Here's a strange phrase. They disbelieved for joy. That's interesting. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever had something so magnificent happen to you that was so good, it was so joyful, you couldn't believe it was actually happening? It's rare. Most of us expect the good, look for the good, work for the good, so something that will actually make us not believe it's happening because it's so joyful, it's so good, is a rare thing. It's happened to me just a few times in my life. The first time, I think, probably was the day I was married. We left here, Southern California, and went back to West Texas, where my wife is from, and I married her in the church she grew up in. And they opened the back doors of that church, and she stood at the back of the center aisle with her father, and I saw that girl dressed in white. I just couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, I can't believe she's going through with it. <laughs> it's actually happening. It'd be really awkward for her to say, no, now this is going to happen. She had so many better offers. 
I've spent so much time praying against one particular guy that God would deal with him and get him out of the picture. It's really happening. She's coming down the aisle to me. And I disbelieved it for joy. Two other times it happened, and that was the moment each of my sons was placed in my arms for the first time. See, because I'm one of those weird guys that started praying for a wife, started praying for children long before I met my wife. Many years before I met my children, I had prayed for them. So when they placed these healthy baby boys in my arms, they looked up at me and I thought, this is my kid. He's going home with me. I disbelieved it for joy. That's what's happening to the disciples here. This is how Luke ends his gospel. It says in Luke 24, 52, read that with me too. It says regarding Jesus, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. He's going home to the Father because his mission on earth is done, but they leave his presence with great joy. So I misread the Bible. It can't be that they're mourning, waiting for his return. No, the time of mourning and fasting was very, very short, only the time he was away from them because of the cross. And I know that's true because of what Jesus promised all of his disciples in another resurrection appearance in Matthew 28. This isn't just for them. This is a promise made to all of Jesus' disciples, including you with all your troubles and all your questions and all your causes for fear. Jesus said to his disciples, read that with me. Jesus said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when is Jesus present with you? Always. You can't go anywhere that he won't be with you. If you're his disciple, even when you wander away, even when you fail to follow his lead, he graciously goes with you. He wants to lead, make no mistake. He knows the way. He knows the good path. He knows the good pastures as your shepherd. He wants to lead you beside still waters. He wants to care for you and provide for you. But wherever you go, David looked forward to his day and explained it like this. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because why? You are with me. The presence of Jesus means joy, and Jesus is here now. If you want to see it in the nitty-gritty of life, consider the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Paul had been jailed and was being starved. That famous passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that you usually hear after, winning, after they interview the winning side in a big football game, has nothing to do with winning football games. What Paul says in context is, I know how to be starved. I know how to suffer exposure. I, knew, I know how to be completely exposed and helpless, and I know how to have everything I need. In all circumstances, I've learned to be content. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me, and Christ strengthens me because he's actually there. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.4, reflecting on that suffering. Read that with me. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The presence of Jesus brings joy, and Paul says, wherever you are, even if you're imprisoned, you can rejoice in the Lord. He is with you. You can have joy. And here's something really important I need to explain to you. Paul's not talking about happiness. 
See, happiness is fleeting. Happiness, I think that's why the word was written that way in English. Happiness depends on what happens to you. So happiness is really not ever completely within your grasp. A lot of things can happen to you outside of your control. And your happiness can be gone just like that. If I walked out of these three wonderful weekend services and discovered at the end of this service that one of you has backed into my car and caved in one side, and in true Christian love, driven off without leaving a note, <laughs> I wouldn't be happy. That's not a cause for happiness. Oh, good. That looks like about a $1,100 repair. That's going to be so I'd so much. Rather spend the money on that rather than, I don't know, food. <laughs> no, there's not happiness there, but there can always be joy. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because joy goes deeper. Someone explained that joy is what you have from the deep sense and knowledge that you are pleasing to God. When Jesus was baptized, we're told in the Gospel of Luke, as He ascended out of the waters, He was praying. He was speaking to His Father in prayer, and the Father spoke back from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. And what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be connected to that vine that is giving you life is, because you're in Christ, you're pleasing to God. At all times, not because you obey Him perfectly, but because Jesus has given you a new identity. And even when God is disappointed and grieved by you ignoring Him and walking away from Him, because you are in Christ, you are accepted in Christ by the God who made you. That's grace. That's the source of joy. That's what gives you fuel. That's what gives you strength. And that's what gives you security. But we have to cultivate that awareness. See, the reason Jesus was in the party enjoying himself and the reason people were celebrating with them, they knew, those notorious people in that town knew we don't belong here. He's better than us. He's on a whole other level of holiness and closeness to God, and yet he wants to be with us. He is here with us. He is enjoying us. One of the disciples just made a toast. It's not a mournful gathering. Jesus is actually enjoying us, and your key as following Him as His disciple is to cultivate your awareness that Jesus is with you. See, too many times I think we're like little tiny children who have gone into a busy shopping mall with their parents, and the kid wrestles his hand free, gets adventurous, gets two feet ahead of his parents, and because he's so short and because it's so crowded, loses sight of his parents and panics with the parents two feet behind him. You ever seen this? Get just a little bit ahead, like, oh, no! Hey, buddy, we're right here. Oh, thank goodness you're here. I thought you had left me. I thought it was all over for me. Your heavenly Father knows who you are. He knows your name. Your, cir your circumstances, your trouble, your suffering is not unknown to Him. He knows who you are. He knows what you're doing. The question is whether you will cultivate your awareness of Him. What does that look like? 
That looks like understanding that Jesus is not a concept or an idea. He's an actual person who was so real that He chose to become flesh incarnate. He chose to live among us, to show us the very character of God because that's who He is. And even though He is physically gone for an undetermined time, He is real and He is as close to you in a way that is so close to you that you can't possibly understand it. You're like that little child who feels lost in the world, not knowing that everything is provided for you because your Father is right beside you. You just don't see it. What's that look like on a daily basis? I'll just tell you my story. I don't know what your mind is like, but I have the kind of mind as soon as my eyes open in the morning. I mean, as soon as they open. I don't, the way I'm wired, I don't even have five seconds to lay there and say, boy, this is nice. I'm glad we got this mattress. This is great. Nope, not me. My eyes open and I immediately start thinking about what I have to do. And I fight the urge to reach for the cell phone and check email. This morning and last night, I did. And I, this happens sometimes in my life. I got a steady stream of email. Someone, as they later said in a later email, throwing a little bit of a temper tantrum. Bing, 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 bing. And my eyes open even when it's not like that, and I'm immediately thinking about what I have to do. And that's the struggle. When my eyes open, I'm on my mind. And Jesus has something better. He has himself. He who is always present wants to welcome me into his presence. So this morning, I remembered the sermon that I preached just last night, which you're hearing right now. And I thought to myself, I can get engaged in my stuff and I can start fighting and thinking and worrying and struggling and scheming and efforting, or I can go meet with Jesus. So I did. But Jesus and me, in the morning, it takes coffee on my side. So I got a strong cup, and I found my Bible, and I used the gift of prayer. I told him about all the things I was troubled about, all the things that were already racing in my mind. I told him about this moment that we're having now, just us. And I prayed for you. And I looked again in John 15, and I was reminded of the promises he had made. Go back there with me. Go forward there in John chapter 15, verse 5. Let me show you the most amazing thing. John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That's simple, isn't it? He's the vine. He's the one that has life. My task is to stay close. As long as I'm connected to Him, His life will flow through me. Picture's easy, right? What has to happen? We have to spend time together. He's not leaving. His presence brings joy. He will abide in me, and He will spend time with me as I welcome and cultivate and am conscious that He is actually here with me. Verse 5, just so that I couldn't miss it, Jesus made it very clear. He said, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And I don't believe it. Not in the way I live. 
This is the Word of God. I believe every word written is of God and true. But in the way I actually behave, I must not really believe what Jesus said when He told me, Bruce, apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what I really believe. Apart from Jesus, I can at least get started because there's a lot to do. And I'm already up. And my mind's already engaged. And I already have ideas and plans and experience. I can at least get started. And then when it really gets tough, I'll call him in. You ever treat Jesus that way? Just charge the day and about 12.30 in the afternoon. It's just one dry, horrible experience. And then you say, oh, sorry, Lord. I hadn't checked with you first. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, that's what the word pictures that Jesus closed the story with are all about. Look in verse 36, Luke 5. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. This kind of made me sit up straight when I was reading it this week too. What's this word picture about? What's this parable about? Let's study it together. Jesus is talking about two different groups of things, clothing and wine and wineskins. What do they have in common? What's he comparing? Old and new. And what's the point? Old and new, according to Jesus, what? They don't mix well, do they? You imagine you've got this old coat and you've torn a piece off of it, so you go out and buy yourself a $500 brand new coat, cut a patch off the new coat, put it on the old. Would that work? No, run them both. Same thing with the wineskins. What's his point? His presence on earth, the fact that God's promises have been physically, personally kept, and you can walk up to the promise of God. You can meet God in person. God has come that close. And not only that, after his resurrection to prove that he's God, he's promised to never leave you or forsake you, to go with you everywhere, including the very shadow of the valley of death, so that when death finally comes for you as it does for everyone, he will take that terrible enemy and turn it into your greatest victory. That new work of God can't be contained by old forms. See, the Pharisees loved their old coats and their old wineskins. They loved ceremony and they loved ritual, and most of all, they loved being in charge. They loved the idea that their careful observance of what God had said, or at least the way they understood it, would prompt God to act. Jesus is saying God is doing something completely new. If you try to bring your own self-directed rituals, if you try to bring your own religion and every person, even if they don't claim a church, is religious because every person in the world is trying to do things in their own way to make their life just as good as it can be. And one of the greatest misconceptions that pastors in America have created among God's people is that Jesus is sort of a helper. And you can come to Jesus and tell Jesus what kind of life you want and ask for His help, and He'll give you the life that you want. 
And he's saying, no, this is a whole new thing. And most of all, Jesus is not a patch onto your old life because what he's doing is making everything new. But the struggle in every human heart is found in verse 39. This is aimed right at the Pharisees. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. See, that struggle to stay in my old ways or to follow Him, follow the very presence of God and know that God is with me, that's the struggle for becoming a Christian and the struggle for living as a Christian. There's two kinds of people in this room. There are some who already know Jesus and are following Him, and there are some of you who aren't yet sure. If God called you to judgment to give an account for your life later this afternoon, you're not entirely sure how that would go. Your temptation is to hang on to the familiar, to stick with what you know, to hope that it's good enough. Here's what Jesus is telling you. His presence on earth brings joy immeasurable, but you can't hang on on to your old ways. You have to surrender to Him. Here's how I'll close this service, by making two personal invitations. The first is to you, the seeker. You've come to church because you're trying to figure God out. You're just not sure. I've told you from Scripture, verifiable prophecy pointing to Jesus, He's the only way home to God. He's doing something entirely new. Your rituals, your ceremonies, your hope so, your try a little harder, it'll never work. It's an old coat. It's an old wineskin. It cannot possibly contain what God is doing in sending His very Son after you to save you, to die on the cross for your sins. Your only hope and my personal specific invitation to you is that you'll do what Levi did, that you'll repent, that you'll turn around and say to God, I'm sorry for my sin. I've tried it my way. It doesn't work. I'm coming after you. I want you to be my Savior and my boss. And the second part, the boss part, is what the human heart resists. Because, boy, do we love being in charge. The second invitation is for those of you who already know Jesus. See, the most amazing thing that I've thought about this week is that Jesus is always present, and when I am inattentive and pay no attention to Him, He's so humble and gracious, He waits. And He beckons. And He orchestrates circumstances in my life to bring me to an end to myself, and He reminds me, there's a Bible, it's closed, open it, hear my voice again. And that struggle, to daily cultivate His presence, to have those eyes open and think not of myself first, but think of Him and go to Him and cultivate an awareness that He really is with me and He really is my Savior and His presence brings joy, that's the daily struggle, that's the daily walk with Jesus. So I want to close this time by praying. And I wonder where you are with God. Could I ask you to bow your head so we can pray together for a moment? If you're not sure, could I invite you right now, prompted by God's grace that maybe has been working away at you and persuading you for some time, 
and God is finishing the work this morning, could I invite you to turn away from yourself and give up on yourself and say, Jesus, I believe. You don't need right, the right words. It's a matter of personal trust. It's a matter of disposition, of saying, I'm turning away from my own life, and I'm trusting you to give me life. I'm connecting to the vine. Save me, Jesus. Be in charge. If you'll do that, just call out to Him. Many times people can lead you through a prayer. You don't need any specific words. God knows the heart. A man dying beside Jesus on the cross said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Just think of me. You're coming back. Think of me when you do. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just that certain, that immediate. The man gave up on himself. He turned to Jesus and he was saved. You can be too. All I ask if you do, is let us know. Fill out that card and let us know that today you've turned to God and you've asked Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. How about you, Christian? It's chronic. I ask sincere, committed Christians how they're doing with reading Scripture, hearing God's voice in Scripture, and praying, and almost everybody admits to a struggle, to inconsistency, to dry times. That's the battle for discipleship right there. It doesn't go anywhere if it doesn't start there. It never outgrows hearing and speaking to Jesus, whose presence brings joy and who has promised to be with you. So, could you tell him about tomorrow that you'll grab your cup of coffee or whatever works for you, and as soon as you can pay attention tomorrow, you'll spend time with him? He's promised to go with you. He's promised to give you joy if you'll just grow close. Father, we thank you. We commit to you, Lord, this time of, of repentance and turning to you. I pray for those who need you as Savior that you would finish the work, pull them across the line. For those who are hesitant and resistant, thinking about hanging on to the old coat, hanging on to the old wineskins, Make them humble and pliable in your call so that they will turn to you and be saved today. Give them also, Lord, the grace to let us know so that we can join the celebration that will take place in heaven when they turn to you. For my brothers and sisters who struggle between thinking more of themselves and putting you first, help me, help them. Cultivate your presence because there, Lord, we find joy. We give you this offering and these cards, Lord, with these decisions. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.